0: Welcome to episode number 50 of the Jackson Hole Connection, brought to you by Jackson Hole Marketplace, a small, friendly neighborhood market with a huge personality. Please visit the slash jhm to learn more. I'm Stephan Abrams, your host. I believe if you desire a truly fulfilling life, both personally and professionally, then you must be willing to find a connection with people outside of your everyday circle of influence, which is why I created the Jackson Hole Connection Podcast. Today's episode is a huge accomplishment for me. I've made it to 50 episodes. Thank you to everyone who supported me over the past year. I've really enjoyed speaking to all of my guests and getting to know them more personally. Sharing their stories with others has been a fun highlight of being a podcast host. My guest today is Burt Rombert. He's a father, husband, grandfather, retired businessman, philanthropist, and speaker. I've had the pleasure to call Burt my friend for the past 15 of the 20 years I've been here in the Valley. Burt has led a beautiful life, which began during a time the world experienced much devastation, hatred, and death. Burt will share with us today his story which begins as a little boy in Germany, how his family avoided the concentration camps during World War II, and what this means for the world today to accept refugees. Bert is very thorough in explaining his early life and the situation Jews experienced, which built up during the early stages of the war. My plan is to interview Bert again this year so we can all hear the second half of his story because what you'll hear today is really the first half of his life. So I don't want to take away any more from Bert's story, so I'm going to stop introducing him and we're going to jump right into the interview. Bert, thank you for having me up to your house today. When you accepted my invitation to be a guest on the Jackson Hole Connection, I just went home that night and told my wife all about it. I was so excited. It's wonderful to see you today.
1: Good, to be, good of you to come by. Um, let, let's talk a little bit. I mean, it's a gorgeous day. Uh, I haven't anything better to do. Nothing more exciting than talking to my good friend, Stefan. <laughs>
0: Well, you're, you're very kind about saying that you have nothing better to do than <laughs> to sit here and talk to me, and I, I appreciate that. <laughs> so in the pre-show, we were talking a little bit about your connection to Jackson Hole. Tell me the background of your connection to, the, to this phenomenal community.
1: To make a long story, hopefully not any longer. In 1972, um, by, by which time I was fairly senior in the company that I spent 45 years with, we were able to take fairly long summer holidays. In fact, we were instructed to take fairly long summer holidays. And I had three weeks, and we planned a driving trip from Dallas with our end point, Yellowstone National Park, and a one- or two-night stayover in Jackson Hole. Uh, our kids were young teenagers, as was typical in those days, 1972. We had a station wagon. We put a mattress in the back. Our three kids were, at that time, 12, 10, and 8. And we traveled the Midwest till we got here. This was our end point. And we loved it and hadn't forgotten it since. Fast forward to, to 2000, and oh no, to, to, uh, to, to 1992, 1992, 93. By then, we were even more senior in our company, and we took long weekends having the ability we thought to find a second home. And we traveled the country for some two and a half years from Massachusetts, the Berkshires, to San Diego and many points in between, looking for a place we might settle or we might have buy a second home. We were invited to a wedding in San Francisco I told my company, I told my colleagues, we're leaving to go to a wedding, we'll be back next Wednesday or whenever. And at this wedding, which was magnificent, uh, the the ceremony was on Saturday afternoon, it was in the cathedral on Nob Hill, and the reception thereafter was in a hotel downtown, and different from weddings that we host in Dallas where the out of towners show up on Thursday and don't leave till Tuesday and all our friends (laughs) entertain them each night so we the hosts don't have so much work. In San Francisco we were at the wedding early in the afternoon at the church later on late afternoon early evening a magnificent reception at the hotel and the hosts at the end said very nice, shook our hands, when you're in town, come visit with us or give us a call. And it was over. And here I had told my office I would not be back for two or three days on a work day. So, and we were in the middle of this search for a, a place where we might put a second home. And Terry remembered that we had been I, was, I had such a nice time in Jackson Hole, she said, maybe we could stop off in Jackson Hole and see what it's like. So I called Delta Airlines at the time. This is an event that will never happen again. But we had tickets from Dallas to San Francisco, back to Dallas on Delta. And I asked a very nice lady on on the phone at Delta, can you route us through Jackson Hole on the way from San Francisco back to Dallas and she said well let's see what we can do and she came back and apologized that she could do this very easily but it would cost us 25 bucks a ticket <laughs> <laughs>
0: apologizing <laughs> that it was going to be 25 dollars a right. ticket
1: right. I love it so so we did that and, and we, we checked into the Alpenhof which was the same place that we had stayed at on our first trip 30 years ago. And lo and behold, the next morning, we get up, and across the way from the Alpenhof was a realtor's office. So he, we knocked on his door, and he was very happy to see us gringos. <laughs> <laughs> and we looked around, and and... and, and that was the end of our pursuit because Mrs. Romberg realized right there that this was a place she would like to settle on for a number of reasons but I, in in retrospect I think the main reason was it, it was the most expensive piece of real estate in <laughs> North America and she had to have a piece of it now it, it it fitted a, a, a number of our, our uh, sort of Requirements. One was uh, very specifically in Texas. We were used to this rather
0: warm, often hot climate with very little. You're being so kind on that climate.
1: Well, very, <laughs> very little seasonal change. Mm-hmm. And, and we wanted a place, she wanted, and, and rightly so, uh, a place where you have a change in seasons. Uh, that that was one reason the other was this you know magic of having two national parks in your front yard basically uh, and the third was at that time very good air connections out of Dallas and very inexpensive so the, that that those that combination and we 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 stopped Looking once we had seen that place, but then the the uh, trying to trying to find a home or a house or a, a domicile that we could afford, or, you know, within our budget. And I'm not even sure we had a budget, but but compared to housing costs in Dallas, even high end housing costs whatever we looked at here was just through the roof on you know on a comparative say square foot construction cost basis everything here seemed just out of this world so I, I, we, after a while i said we we can't afford this place and and then we thought maybe we can if we find a piece of land and pay it off you know, sit on it for a while and pay it off. So when it came to actually building something, or buying something, we would at least not have the cost of the land in it. And that's sort of how it happened, except that once we found a piece of land, we gave up looking at a house, because the comparative cost of an already built structure, it seemed to us, compared to Dallas, that people here just expected to get quadruple the price, and, and that was beyond our capability at the time. So in uh, in 1993 or four, we found this place. We found it. We decided to buy the land, five acres. Uh, on Thanksgiving, we closed on it over Christmas, New Year's that same year, and then I got to thinking I'm already well into my 60s. If we don't do something with it, how much use will I have for? So very shortly thereafter, we went looking for an architect and proceeded, and that, that was why we are where we are in this place. Fast forward a couple of years because it took us a long time to get permission from the plan board here for the kind of house we wanted because it's, we're on a ridge line and we had restrictions, etc., etc. et cetera. Fired two architects before, before we finally settled on the one that could adapt to the restrictions both from the homeowners association and from the county. Um, so we lost almost two years in that process, and finally had a house that we got occupancy in 1998.
0: So we've been here 21 years. Okay? That's the year before I moved here. I moved here in the summer of 1999. Okay. Yeah.
1: So that was it. So, uh, uh, very uh, And it turned out that the choice the location here for our family was uh, i mean it was propitious put it that way because we had a daughter one daughter living in Dallas still one in Arizona and one in Georgia mm-hmm. and all of them had reasonable you know, air connection to here and all of them turned out love this place so it 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 was easy for them to get used to it, to love it. So although this was a part-time house, most of the time there's been an, an occupant as much as 75% of, of in, in any given year.
0: Mm-hmm. That's spectacular.
1: Yeah, it's pretty good. If it's not us, it's one of, the, one of the daughters and their friends. So there's been a lot of traffic
0: in this house and people love it. So you have become quite ingrained in, in the community when you're here. Not just the community yeah, of yeah, Jackson, yeah. but also the Jewish community. And you mentioned that you were living in Dallas, but you're not originally from Dallas. No. You're, you're not raised in Texas, and you were certainly not born in Texas.
1: No. Where, where were you born? Uh, I, I was born in Germany. I'm I'm a refugee. I'm, I'm what's considered a first
0: generation immigrant. Where where in Germany were you born? And when you look at the reference of East-West Germany, what right, here, part of that? Here we
1: go. And, and, uh, anybody who's familiar with European geography will probably recognize this. Uh, I was born in southwestern Germany in a, in a little... Town, a hamlet, uh, not not more than a couple hundred families, maybe a maybe a thousand, fifteen hundred people. I'm not even sure. Uh, called Astheim, A S T H E I M Astheim, and it sits in a in a very prosperous farming area. It's at the meeting of the main north-south river, the Rhine, and the main east-west river in Germany, the Main, M-A-I-N. And this little burg sits in in the armpit of those two major rivers, uh, very well irrigated, very rich, very easily farmed country, and, and, and the farmers and the the growers in that area they they raised everything from raisins to make wine uh you know grapes to make wine to to goats and cattle and 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 all the feed that that requires and everything in between and and you were born what year i was born in 1930 I, i have a sister she's a year older than i she was born in 1929
0: And you did not live all of your life until you moved to Dallas in Germany. So you and your sister left Germany at what age?
1: I was not quite nine, sister was not quite 10. The circumstances were uh, of course the onset of the Nazi, uh, Nazi takeover of the German government. Um, and in a few short years, the, the obvious persecution and hounding of, the, uh, uh, of Germany's Jewish citizens uh, of which we were a part. And that eventually persuaded my mother, who was widowed by that time, that it was too dangerous and fraught with all kinds of hazards for us to stay there. And eventually she managed to uh, get a visa to England. And we, uh, her children, were admitted to England along with her. But we traveled on the kinder transport. Uh, your audience may not know what the kinder transport is. Uh, I can give you a long history of that, but I'm not sure you're interested in that.
0: Just real quickly, what is the Kindertransport?
1: Kindertrans- in, in, in the, the, the Nazis took over the German government in 1932, early 1933, by a democratic election of which they won the largest block of votes. Not a majority, but the largest block of votes. And they cajoled and bullied and, and argued with smaller Parties and finally put together a block of votes 50% and that block of votes took over the German government and took power in 1933 with the Nazis as the lead party and its leader uh, a guy called Hitler, Adolf Hitler became the chancellor of, of the German government equivalent of our president and this has some real Precedents for succeeding governments in, in many many countries but immediately after he took power he demanded what we today would call an en- enabling act from parliament giving him authority to rule without obstruction or without the hindrance or without adherence to a democratic uh, constitution and he immediately established a dictatorship uh, whose many, many tenets or whose main tenets had to do with blaming minorities and foreigners for all of Germany's problems and one of the minorities they settled on for their venom and their hatred and their destruction of their own main German population were its Jewish citizens, some 40, 400 to 450,000 Jews in a general population of some 45 to 50 million, so less than 1% of its population at that time became the major target of a, of a vicious, raci- racist policy. So that was early 1933. And we, as, as, as these policies affected us, our little family, uh, living in Ostheim was our family and one other family, the Strausses, two Jewish families in this rather isolated rural community, isolated socially, not isolated uh, other in other ways. It was a fairly prosperous community and prosperous to the effect uh, compared to the rest of Germany because this was a recession, severe depression times. The Germans were in deep, deep financial problems, but Aston was not because with this these two beautiful rivers providing an agriculture second to none we were able to feed ourselves but that didn't prevent the Nazi racist policies from filtering into this little community and uh, among other tragedies that hit our family in those years uh, was that our uh, the matriarchs of our family, my grandfather and my father died fairly rapidly. My grandfather died in 1929, two months after my sister was born and he had established a very nice, very very comfortable business, uh, what today you would call a farm and ranch store operation, catering to the rural community had very good relations with them uh, with, with them, and with his neighbors. Uh, he died in, in 1929, right after his sister was born. And then four years later, um, in 1930, early 1934, my father died, we think from wounds he uh, suffered as an officer in the German army the Kaiser's army in World War I. We're not sure of that, but we are sure that he died. So, <laughs> so no, we're not sure of the cause. Sure. Um, so my mom was widowed with two little kids with a business that she inherited from her father because although she had three siblings, two older sisters and a brother, she was the last one left at home. Mm -hmm. the other three were off married and or chasing a career in some of the big cities so she's stuck with having to try to maintain this business with two snot nosed kids and now the responsibility of her mother who's widowed my grandmother 1933 1934 my father died 1935 the Nazi party has taken over the national government, has sent a, a uh, party leader to live in Ostheim to uh, Nazify not just Ostheim but the surrounding county, etc., etc., and to vilify what Jews are living in that area, and eventually to drive them out. In those years, the Nazis made no, no uh, secret of the fact they wanted to get rid of this Jewish minority. Um, they not only hated the Jews, they, they, they hated everybody who was not what they considered a good Aryan heritage. Um, they hated the Slavs, they hated the Poles, they hated any brown people or black people So they were uh, universal haters of everybody, but the people they thought should look like themselves. In any event, 1933, 1934, one of the regulations, two regulations came out very quickly from the national government, and and, and one was a little bit complicated, the other one was very simple. The complicated one said in effect you good german burgers morally you should not be friendly with jews morally you should not be doing business with them morally you should ostracize them from your society and if you have to do business with them pay them as little as possible pay them what you can get away with hopefully you can pay him nothing. And if you owe m- money, you don't have to pay him back. And we, the government, which is now the Nazi party, will see to it that no policeman, no jury, no prosecutor, no judge will take a Jews case against you. So right there, we the Jews in Ostheim and in Germany lost Literally, all of our legal standing, both criminal and civil, can't so we,
0: operate a business without right. knowing that so we, people you're selling to. So we had no to... no protection. Yeah,
1: and just about the same time, a very simple regulation said, "No Jewish child will attend a public school." So here's my now widowed mother in 1934, having all this responsibility, and. A business that's beginning to collapse on her shoulders because a people are scared even if they want to do business with her to trade with her and b she's unable to collect debts from the farmers who used to be our friends so by 1935 she determines that this little place where we are you know just two Jewish families Dominated by this Nazi leader in town, uh, she's got to get out of there. So she, she is able to sell our property to a neighbor who remained friendly. Uh, with whom we, ha- whose children, parenthetically, we—I'm talking my sister and I—in recent months have been in touch on the phone with them. Oh, really? That, that neighbor's. Kids, you were friendly. Our our our, our generation, mm-hmm. and the, and they gave my mom evidently a reasonably fair price for the property. We we have no we haven't no a clue what the details were, mm-hmm. but it was enough to give her the freedom to plan to leave, and she chose a place called Eschwege some a larger town, some sixty miles north and east of Ostheim, where her next older sister was living on bringing up her family. And that was in the end of 1935, early 1936. And she brought our grandmother with her and we moved into a flat, an apartment in Eschwege. I guess mama had some funds from selling the property and and she became a seamstress and took in neighbors sewing to supplement her her income whatever that was and she reasoned Eschwege a town of some 20-25 thousand people at the time a market town was a little more cosmopolitan a little more e- educated than this hamlet that we lived in but mainly or two main reasons. One, she was lonely for family, so she would reunite with his sister and family. And two, there were enough Jewish families in Eshviga to start their own school so that she could look for some education for her little, for her infant kids. And for a year or a year and a half or two years, that reasoning was correct we had relative peace we had a reasonably comfortable apartment i can still picture it and we enrolled in school i enrolled in kindergarten i have pictures of that and, and maggie my sister in first grade or the equivalent of first grade i guess in early 1936 and it, you know we lived as well as we could and then there's Nazi philosophy of hatred of the Jews and other minorities uh, infested Eschwege and it got worse and worse and by 1937 1938 uh, Maggie and I were at fairly regular intervals being accosted on the way to or from school by local kids who should have been our friends but now became our bullies and, and they threw our books in the gutter and maybe stole our lunch pails. Anyway, we would come home crying and, and there wasn't anything to be done about it because nobody would take would defend a Jew, whether they wanted to or not. Even if they wanted to, they were afraid to. And then this horrific event uh, in late 1938 called Kristallnacht Kristall, two German words Kristall is crystal as we know it but, but in, in, in this context is like crinkling broken glass and Nacht is the word for night so it was the night of the broken glass it was a uh, 24-hour event orchestrated by the Nazi government on a national scale in every village, in every town, in every city, Jewish property was invaded, was vandalized, was ransacked, and the streets were filled with broken glass, hence the name Kristallnacht. But the worst part of that event was that Jewish men, 19 years and older, were kidnapped and taken to the first of the concentration camps. Uh, The world first heard names like Dachau, Buchenwald, Gross Rosen, beautiful names for terrible places, Uh, Gross Rosen, translates into large, beautiful flowers. It's a place where people were killed. And the men that were taken there, uh, uh, tens of thousands into these concentration camps, um, they were interned there anything from a few weeks to a few months. Some died there, but those that left or were eventually released, Many were sort of, if not physically, certainly visually uh, or mentally scarred. They never never got over it. Our our uncle Ernie was one of them. Uh, of course, I was too young, but other people that we knew were were among that. And and that event in late nineteen thirty-eight it horrified the world, and it terrified the the, the German. Jewish community but the world weren't horrified enough or didn't care enough or had its own problems and its own recession depression and as we have heard in recent times and many times since don't send us any refugees the German government the Nazis said go get out of here we don't want you we're going to take your citizenship away anyway, but very few countries, very few areas would accept refugees from Germany because it was, and particularly in Europe uh, and, and, and ironically Great Britain, which was the first of the major trade union nations but so dominated by the unions that said, we don't have enough jobs here. Don't send us any more to take the jobs we got.
0: We have our own economic problems.
1: Right, Mm -hmm. right. And the the politicians, of course, realizing that if they let any amount of refugees in by the next election, they would be out. So we, the, the, the German Jews, by that time, were in effect trapped because we lined up at, at any consulate that would even consider it to try and get a visa. And mostly we didn't. There had been, in the earlier 30s, when the Nazis said, you leave us, uh, there had been uh, departures or emigrations, and, and maybe 50,000 of those 400-some-odd thousand did get out. A lot of them came to America. And to places like South Africa, and maybe a few to Sweden, but the bulk of the population, either couldn't afford it or just you know couldn't believe it. They they said this Nazi plague will, will pass, etc. etc. So so they were trapped, and I have. I have copies of documents that that show that my grandmother, was trapped, didn't get the visa that she applied for my mother didn't get the visa she applied for but got a visa a different way so it's 1938 1939 and and uh, a cousin of my mom's had gotten gone to England in late 1920s taken some money established himself and his brother in a very good manufacturing business, and corresponded with my mother most of the time. Look at him. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah,
0: mostly, we're, mostly, we're sitting at Bert's window, and there's several hummingbirds coming in, looking at us in the window, and you see them feeding on the plants and the hummingbird feeder.
1: So anyway, uh, this this cousin, my uh, my uncle Benno as a result of constant male correspondence with my mom managed to get a visa for her had petitioned I don't know how he did it but we think he was some kind of a conniver and had some money and maybe paid somebody off but the British issued her a visa and I suppose your audience knows what a visa is if not, they should know that it's not a credit card. <laughs> okay? That's right. Uh, it's permission from a country to... It says you can come to our country. It usually has some conditions. And we have a copy of it. And the, the visa my mother got dated February 1939. Read quite plainly. I'll, I'll give it to you from memory because I've looked at it many times since. It, it reads, Refugee to be admitted to the United Kingdom on condition that she, and, and this is gender specific, on condition that she does not accept any employment other than as a resident helper in a household. Now, the the translation to that is, or the transliteration to that is, Mrs. Romberg, if you come to England, we'll let you in. But if you have to work, and we assume you do, you're not going to take any other employment than a housemaid in a household. Mm -hmm. And that was February 1939, some four months after the Christana. So she's faced with a dilemma she's got this visa which by the way also carries my name and my sister's name so the three of us can go but she's thinking how am i going to go to england have to go to work in a household what household is going to take two little runny-nosed kids and she hears about the kinder transport kinder transport new word for you german word translated as follows kind is the german word for child kinder is its plural children and transport is the same word we have in england in in america or in english it's movement of goods so in this case it's the movement of children transportation of children and how does it come about in this terrible event, racist event in Germany, a uh, small religious sect in Britain, in England, called the Quakers. Here's about all this that's going on. They don't have television, but they have radio and they have a newspaper and they can't believe it or they don't believe it. And they send a small delegation, four or five or six people, I'm not sure exactly of the details to Germany to verify or to to find out what's really going on and this delegation comes back in a very short time because from England to Germany is a small ferry ride and they tell their congregants that it's worse than anything we see in the newspapers or we hear on our radio but there's absolutely no future for Jews in Germany. And we as Quakers, who are dedicated to doing some good deed every day, have to do something. And they bargain with the British government, with Parliament, with, in coordination with a refugee, Jewish refugee society in England called Bloomsbury House, uh, sort of the equivalent of our highest uh, they bargained with the parliament and it takes several weeks of bargaining and parliament at the beginning said no way don't send us any refugees if we even try we're not going to be in parliament after the next election uh, because of the labor unions but finally the Quakers come away with a compromise a bargain and the compromise is this you the Quakers and whoever is working with you can bring in refugees from Germany but only children 15 years and younger because they are not going to take any of our jobs and further you the Quakers will see to it that any child you bring in as a refugee from Germany will be housed, fed, schooled, and clothed at no expense to the British Treasury. You will see to it that they are taken care of lock, stock, and barrel. Don't bother us with the cost of bringing in any refugees. And the Quakers said, "Okay, we'll we'll accept that bargain. And they locate, because they had some lead time, figuring they'll come out with some kind of bargain, they located, they they negotiated with the German railroads, the Deutsche Bahn, and they located trains at four stations in Berlin, the capital, Frankfurt, the uh, number two city in Germany, and then in Vienna, the capital of Austria, that had already pledged its allegiance to the Nazis, and in Prague, the capital of Czechoslovakia, which was rapidly being occupied by the Germans. In those two cities, there were large Jewish populations. And the the German Jewish families that heard about this kind of transport, because it came about as a surprise, uh, so many of them didn't hear about it, and and most of them were too far away from these stations to take advantage of it. But there were enough Jewish families that brought their children to these trains in the hope that they could evacuate them to England and isolate them, isolate them from this. Terrible Nazi philosophy, racist philosophy. Not knowing if they would ever see them again. And most didn't. But my mom heard about this. And we're in Eschwege not too far from Frankfurt. And she figured, if I can't take care of my kids, the Kindertransport will. And moreover, I have a visa to England. Maybe I can hop this train and go as a chaperone and get admitted at the same time Mm -hmm. which is exactly what she did for your listeners you should know that the hero to this entire story is our mother because you have to picture her position you know she's trapped the decision she's about to make means she's leaving her sister her sister's children her mother And I don't know how many other relatives, and picking up into some social and economic environment totally strange to her. And at the same time, giving her children into the care of who knows. But she made that decision. Very brave. Very brave, very commonsensical, uh, almost peasant intuition for lack of a better term because she had nobody to guide her she had nobody to consult with but that's what she did so that was that was middle 1939 the kindertransport lasted from december 1938 and ended the month the war started august 1939 some nine months, and in that time they transported just about 10,000 Jewish kids, 15 years and younger, and they, the Quakers, and the English families that they found to sort of foster us, took us in, for better or worse, mostly for better. Some not so good, but mostly for better and certainly for survival because here's the tragic arithmetic. In the ensuing years after the war broke out and the Nazi onslaught on its neighbors killed six million Jews and why six million? Because in it's very... Germany had spent those eight or nine years leading up to the Second World War, in a massive armaments, uh, armament rearming, and and what that did, and why Hitler became so popular, and why they followed him in this very evil quest, was because out of recession and depression, building up a war machine gave everybody a job. Among other things, there are various scenarios of how this happened. But basically, from massive unemployment and and a population that didn't know how to feed its kids, suddenly everybody had work, and good work. Meaningful. They brought home good salaries, put it that way. It was war work, but good work. So Hitler had a whole nation grateful to him, and he and his party, in that short period of time, turned a nation that in the 1920s and earlier was was one of the most advanced civilized societies in, in, in the arts, in the sciences, in everything that we consider Western civilization, turned this nation into a band of killers. So that when the war broke out where England, France and other nations had demobilized, gotten rid of their armaments. Germans armed themselves to the teeth and quickly overran huge sections of Europe. Within a year, huge chunks of France conquered Belgium, conquered Holland, conquered the Baltic countries on the other side, Estonia, Lithuania, uh, Latvia, Conquered the Ukraine, conquered Poland, conquered the entire Slavic population down to Greece, Romania, Hungary, Yugoslavia. You name it. It's
0: like a big forest fire. Hmm. It's like massive forest fire. Massive. Yes.
1: Uh, in that huge additional territory were eight million Jews, not just the four hundred thousand in Germany. And of that eight million, six million died. They didn't just die, they were murdered. And here's the arithmetic. Of that six million, million and a half were children, 15 years and younger. 10,000 of us got out ahead of it. Mm-hmm. We were never in a concentration camp, we were refugees. 10,000. Listen to this. This is what I demonstrate to high schoolers that I talk to. Do a little arithmetic. You put 10,000 in the numerator. Mm -hmm. Million and a half in the denominator. Rationalize that. Knock out the zeros top and bottom. You come up with 1 over 150. That's what the mathematicians call An elegant solution it Takes a complicated number Into a simple number
0: mm-hmm.
1: It's a terrible number It means that for every child That got out on the transport, 150 died mm-hmm. In the next six years Anyway End of May, June 1939 We get on the kinder transport, Mom goes As our As our as a chaperone, there were other chaperones on that train, but they had to come back because they didn't have a visa. mama was admitted along with us into Great Britain. She immediately finds a job as a housemaid in a very wealthy home in in North London, and we, Maggie and I, land in a, in a for two days or a couple of days, and what probably was something like a youth hostel, a large room with a bunch of cots and stuff. And uh, adults are moving around among these cots and bringing us kids some food and, and taking us to the bathroom or whatever. And somebody comes up to us, and we had number tags at the, uh, from the, on our goods, and we had very little, but, but we had a number and they probably had a roster and although I don't have the details but very likely some adult came up to me and said oh you're number 623 or whatever and uh, are you Romberg and and, you know I didn't have any English uh, capacity and he didn't or she didn't have any German capacity but I recognized my name so I put my hand up and they said okay come with us we found a family that will take care of you and probably said the same to my sister and they sent us to coventry after just a couple of days in in london in this you know, hostel hostile place which was very nice but it was you know just a bunch of kids and they sent us to coventry and and maggie landed with a family called Simon a Jewish family fairly well-to-do uh, they were a merchant family uh, and I landed with a non-Jewish family called Shepherd uh, a poor working class not so poor but a, a working-class family uh, very interesting contrast The the, the uh, Simons had two kids of their own older than Maggie uh, and didn't treat her very well. She was with them four years, four and a half years. She was turning 10 at the time we got there. And uh, by the time she was 11, 11 and a half, they had made her pretty much into their housemaid. (laughs) They did keep the bargain. They clothed her, they fed her, they housed her and they sent her to school. And she survived. Mm -hmm. She now, you know, she's my age, we're both alive. She has two marvelous grandkids. Uh, So she's had a fairly good life, very good life here in England. Um, By contrast, I went to a non-Jewish family, also with two kids older than me. Uh, I was turning eight, turning nine. Uh, Peter, their son, was two years older than me, two and a half years older. Mary, their daughter, was two years older than he. So by then she was 14, 14 and a half, and they embraced me, they, they loved me. They Who could not me, love you? Hmm?
0: Who couldn't love you?
1: <laughs> so, so uh, and, and Mary was delegated to teach me English in a hurry. They did wonderful things. So for, for instance, they invited the neighborhood kids over to, so I would have playmates. They, uh, if one of those kids would go to visit his grandma, they would go over and ask his parents if we could borrow his bike so I could learn to ride a bike, this kind of stuff. They even gave me piano lessons biggest mistake in the world because I wasn't any good at it no, no good at all and they couldn't afford it but they were just or they shouldn't have been able to afford it but they were just kind gentle people uh, the man of the house Harold was a postman a letter carrier and the lady of the house was a, a part time waitress barmaid in the in the pub down the street So it was a a compact small you know modest livelihood but they were they shared it with me and and mama was in london so that was mid-august 1939 and the second world war broke out so there was no longer any chance of communication with the continent and fairly quickly thereafter uh, Field Marshal Goering, Hitler's right-hand warmonger, uh, unleashed the blitz, the bombing of, of England. And the first major blitz happened to be Coventry, where we are now living. Because Coventry was the, the uh, motor city of England, like Detroit. Okay. Very, very heavy industrial town and the Germans were determined to knock that out to deny England the uh, capability to build up armaments. So there we were, and this is the, the, the next major stress on our mom. She's in London, and we're 100 miles away in Coventry, 120 miles, and the blitz and the war and no communication. So she didn't know whether, you know, what our condition was, whether we were alive or what. For some weeks, uh, we did manage after a while to send a couple of postcards. There was no such thing as a telephone. Even if we could have afforded it, we couldn't get one because it was wartime. So she was in, you know, in limbo. Can you imagine? Not knowing what her kids were doing. But in the meantime, Maggie and I relatively thrived we learned English in in, in in no time flat there was no such thing as ESL I don't know if in Jackson there is something like ESL English as a second language in the school system
0: I'm sure there are programs to help Yeah, that, kind
1: of, that didn't exist in the, if, if we didn't learn English it was not a matter of, of Sink of learning English, you either sink or you swim, mm-hmm. you know. So we, we learned English in a hurry, and I have copies of letters that we sent back and forth uh, about a year and a half after that because the United States didn't enter the war until December 7, 1942, so three mm-hmm. more than two years later, uh, but there was still commerce going on with Britain from England from America to England and another uncle and aunt of mine had gotten to New York in that time and they were sending us care packages
0: Oh fantastic
1: So there's a letter we have it um, of of my sister in, in perfect English she's 11 and a half or 12 years old thanking them for sending these wonderful packages and chocolates and and sort of saying, couldn't we have a little more? Because because by then England was literally starving. Uh Between the Blitz and the U-boats that the uh, Germans sent out into the Atlantic, Uh, and England or Great Britain being an island nation dependent on its food, maybe 75%. From overseas, from Canada, from Australia, and what was then the British colonies, um, we were, you know, we were on very, very short rations. So anything like chocolate or 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 an orange was was like gold. I can remember, I can remember, you know, getting something like that when we were we were hungry on occasion. Not so much hunger as. Uh, just longing for something different something that had flavor Mm -hmm. because there was so little that the English could use to make a decent meal we we had bread that they did and the English made good bread at that time but variety of food was very difficult so here we go we're in 1939 1940 1941 1942 I'm with the shepherds for three years very lovely relationship loving relationship Maggie and and we're the shepherds house was next door to the fire station so in this terrible blitz which happened on Coventry four times the firemen let us use their wonderful bunker so we were we were safe the shepherds and I but Maggie was with the Simons, who were prosperous enough. They had a summer cottage, and they moved to the countryside. Oh, okay. And then the Germans wouldn't waste their bombs on mm-hmm. a few cows. So she was, for three, somewhat years, in a place called Kiington, out in the countryside. For the first few months, I didn't know she was gone. You know, she, The town was blitzed. Uh, and Coventry for an eleven year old in the Blitz was actually a pretty good place. We didn't care. My friends and I we were the school, the windows were blown out, the mm-hmm. school was closed. So we were on vacation <laughs> <laughs> for, for weeks, you know we were helping the war, war effort. We collected shrapnel and old iron and stuff. So it didn't matter. We, we were a twelve year old or a ten year old. He doesn't know about it. Doesn't have the adult fears I did later on, but not that early. So then I, it gets to be 19, end of 1941, 1942, and Mama realizes, although she's in London, I'm coming up on my bar mitzvah. I hope your audience knows what a bar mitzvah is. You can enlighten them later if you want to. But anyway, it's an important part of of the Jewish life cycle, Jewish families' life cycle, and she realizes that that's a problem because Coventry had been blitzed to the point that the synagogue, although the shepherds saw to it that I went to Hebrew school at the synagogue, you know, regularly, they they wanted me to maintain my Jewish education if I could, if they could. But the, the synagogue was bombed out, and the rabbi was in the army or someplace, and the Hebrew teacher was in the navy. So there wasn't any way in Coventry for me to get to learn for my bar mitzvah. So she went back to Hyas, the Immigration Society, and she asked if they could find a place for her little boy to learn for his bar mitzvah, and they found a place. In 1942, early 1942, I got sent to a town called Hartford, about 30 miles north of London, also a rural community. It's the capital of Hertfordshire, a county town, where the, um, the prestigious Jewish orphanage, the Jewish orphanage, was evacuated to get its kids out of the Blitz in London, Mm -hmm. as were most schools in London. London was cleaned out of children who were sent to the countryside in one way or another to get them out of the Blitz. And the Jewish orphanage, a a very well-known, very prestigious orphanage of some 60, 70 kids was sent to Hartford where the town gave them a small old abandoned school building with a small yard, not very, not very big, and certainly not very ostentatious, to take care of their kids as far as schooling, both religious and secular. And because in London they had this beautiful set of dormitories, they had nothing like that in Hartford, its kids, the orphanage's kids were also fostered out on local people in Hartford, and I went there. I landed actually with a family called Littleford, but I didn't last very long three, four weeks. The Littlefords took me in for two reasons, I think for two reasons. Well, well, the main reason was they had a youngster about my age, a little bit younger, who was polio stricken. and. Lived, had to live in a wheelchair, and they thought that I could be a companion to him and, and also wheel him to and from school. That was their main modification. The other was probably, I came with a ration card. This was the time of rationing. Every individual had a ration card, and they were a family of three. And the rationing was something like this. I remember some of them. a quarter of a pound of butter per month per person quarter of a pound of sugar per month per person that kind of thing so you can imagine a housewife trying to manage uh, to feed her family we could get plenty of potatoes because we could pick them ourselves and we could get bread but other stuff luxuries that had a large import component Mm -hmm. but couldn't be imported anymore Uh, fresh fruits uh, some dairy products, and so on and so forth. Uh, besides not being able to import, they still had to now feed a large army. So the civilian population had to, you know, bear the brunt of this deprivation. And we didn't. So, so I imagine Mrs. Littlefoot figured if I could get one more ration card, I could vary the diet a little better.
0: So the family. Her family, the Littleford family, yeah. not everybody in the household was given a ration card.
1: Oh yeah, they were. But me coming, so just adding uh, your adding another card gave gave her a little, a little more variety. More. Mm-hmm. I think that was partly their motivation, but but mainly it was to take care of you know to give some relief to their little boy. Problem was he hated me. Literally couldn't couldn't be in the same room with me, and I think it was. He probably was afraid that I would detract from the parents' attention. Mm-hmm. So, but, but he didn't, he, he just went bananas. So in any event, they had to get rid of me. And down the street, we, li- we lived in, in county council, like Project Housing. They had a friend called Mrs. Hill. I never knew her first name. And her husband was in the army. He was somewhere in, West, in North Africa. I'm not sure he ever came home. You know, he was, he was the army that fought against Rommel. Um, and she said, I'll take him. I, I, you know, I don't have anybody in the house but me. So, so I went there. And I was with her a few months, not very long. And why wasn't I with her very long? Because it turned out Mrs. Hill had gentlemen callers. And when she had a gentleman caller, I had to sit out on the stoop. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what a gentleman caller did, you know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's 11-year-old kid. So anyway, and and it turned out one night, I'm sitting out on the stoop, and the neighbor, the next Mrs. Hills across the way neighbor, put out her cat. Anyway, she saw me sitting there. She said, what are you doing there? I introduced myself she said come on come into my house that was Mrs. Pettit and I stayed with Mrs. Pettit and her family for the next three years oh really wonderful wonderful Mm -hmm. and got to know her They, they had a little boy they had an infant I became his babysitter I corresponded with him Michael through his youth through his fatherhood and he died about, oh, 15 years ago. But I still corresponded with his son hmm. up till a few years ago by email, his son Ben. And then all of a sudden Ben got married, and I didn't hear anyone. <laughs> his wife probably said, you know, he picked up some young gal, I don't know, who, said, probably told him, well, what do you want to correspond with this old fogey anyway? So... So after a few emails that didn't get answered, I just, we have lost that contact. But that lasted until just five, six years ago.
0: That's, that's fascinating.
1: Yep. Um, so that's me. I, I did have my bar mitzvah. And then another stroke of luck. I had all the luck compared to Maggie, who went through four and a half years with the, with the Simons and then had to go to work because Great Britain at that time and maybe America too and I don't know how it is today but public education in Britain at that time stopped at 14. If you didn't have wealthy parents who could send you to higher schooling or win a scholarship of some kind mm-hmm. then on your 15th birthday you were out in the workforce. Okay, That's what happened to Maggie. Mm-hmm. Me I'm at the Orphanage Transferred from In late uh, 1941 Early 1942 Transferred to the orphanage I had my bar mitzvah In July 1943 I was 13 And the London County uh, Because the orphanage Was a uh, a London County Council school and, And the London County was very wealthy. They had, you know, they had jurisdiction over the orphanages' education, and and they had, they had uh, a series of scholarships that still exist today, called the 11s and the fifteenses. So at eleven or twelve, a kid could take an exam, and again at fifteen if he was successful and and, and it very rigorous, probably one in fifty would succeed, then he could immediately get admitted to the next first rung of British university education, which were at the time the grammar schools. They were a series of schools that every county that had the wherewithal could establish like a poor man's Eton or Harrow. And in Hartford, evacuated from London was the Battersea Grammar School, and it shared the quarters of of Hartfordshires Grammar School. So this was this prestigious school. Little Bertie Romberg got a scholarship, <laughs> the second kid in the orphanage's history to do so, and transferred to the Grammar School for my secular education and stayed with the orphanage for my upkeep and religious education lucky lucky romberg i, I don't know how my, i don't know what i deserved for all these good things but this was you know i was literally dipped in it mm-hmm. put it that way. <laughs> so I, I was admitted to the grammar school got my stayed with the orphanage to get my my uh, Bar Mitzvah and and some religious education thereafter. It was wartime, so we I'm at the grammar school and we had this very rigorous curriculum, eight thirty to five thirty during the week and probably till three thirty or four on Saturday on Saturday mornings, Um, and and the curriculum was something like I'm being rather. I'm, I'm giving you a whole story now, this is because we would, at the grammar school, on any, in any given week, we would simultaneously have three maths, algebra, geometry, yeah, algebra, arithmetic, algebra, geometry. Three, three different, three sciences, bio, chem, physics, three English, written English, essays and such, uh, English literature, poetry and and, and, and the, you know better novels and literature and spoken English which was usually debate. I was a 12 year old debater. At least two histories that I remember English history and world history. World history because if you looked at a map of the world in those days the British were, uh, and its colonies were always in red. Mm-hmm. Well, the world was... Red. More than, more than 25% of the world was That's British colonies.
0: said the sun never sits, sets exactly. on the British exactly. Empire. Mm-hmm. Exactly.
1: So, so we learned that. And I don't know if we had separate European history. I don't, I don't know. Language. You, of course, had English. But you would take three other languages two modern languages Spanish, French, Italian or whatever and you would take not not elective required one uh, ancient language either Latin or Greek mm-hmm. so we, we had that as background then you had something the equivalent of I guess what you call here civics you know citizenship
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then we had Uh, we had a sports day. This was very important, I guess, in in the British psyche. You gotta gotta learn cricket, you gotta learn soccer, you you know, you have a sports day. But we didn't have a sports day. Uh, By then I was older, the younger kids had a sports day, but the 12 year olds and up, because it was wartime, we were in the potato fields. We were helping with the harvest. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. So we, we seldom, if ever, had a sports day. Anyway, that, that kind of, and geography, and geology, all in one. And when we left, after another three years, we came to America, and I came into into uh, high school in New York in, in the middle of the sophomore year. I was light years ahead of my peers in, in the languages in 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 well maybe not in spanish but certainly in in german because I still had some german component and french and 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 in the sciences and in the math and and that stood me well till today that, that elementary educated just fantastic background so that eventually you know when I when I went to college and got through with the Army and went back to engineering school, all of that was duck soup. I just, Even if I had forgotten it, catching up, bingo. And, and, and I, I actually, when I went into engineering school after being in the Army and hadn't had any math or physics in, in several years because of that gap, it took me very little time to catch up with physics and and, and trig and, and 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 calculus and so on and so forth.
0: So at what stage or what age of your life did you make it from the UK over to the United States? And was Maggie along with you and, yeah. and your mom? Yep. 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 So okay. here,
1: here's what happened. Uh, to cut a long story short, uh, because we had Uncle Jake and Aunt Irene, my mother's oldest sister, by then in New York already a few years, they got somebody in Washington to you know, work on getting us a visa, and in in I think. At the end of 1944, we also have a copy, we have a letter from somebody in Washington, I assume it was a law firm, notifying my family, Uncle Jake, Uncle Jacob, um, that the uh, State Department had approved the visa application of Sira Romberg and her two children, Berthold and Margaret and that they had notified, were notifying the British Embassy in London we should uh, appear at the embassy and and we did and it took, that process took four or five months and in April 1945 Mama was still in touch with Bloomsbury, although In the meantime, I'll tell you about that separately, we got the visa, Bloomsbury House arranged a berth on a British liner that had been taken over by the Canadian Army and used as a troop, troop ship to ferry their troops across the Atlantic and bring them home that way. And that ship was berthed at uh, Greenock, Glasgow, Scotland. So we took a train from London to Glasgow, got on this ship with lots and lots of Canadians going back home because the war in Europe was still going on, but they were rotating some, some of their armies back home, and many of them were wounded. Anyway, we landed in April... 1945 in Halifax Eastern Canada Halifax is the equivalent of Canada's Ellis Island Um, and we took from there we took a train I remember very clearly to Montreal and on the and changed trains to go from Montreal to New York And, and my sister and I because it was still wartime, and and I can remember this very clearly. We were met at the train in Montreal, probably by like a chapter of Hadassah or something. A bunch of nice Jewish ladies passing out food. And Maggie and I got bananas for the first time in six years. Hmm. And we gorged on bananas, I remember that very clearly. Anyway, Took us from Halifax, I think three days, to get to New York, and we had a family in New York that picked us up at Penn Station. That was in April '45, and two months later, or two weeks later, actually, was Roosevelt died, and two months later in June was VE Day, so that's how we got to New York. So that's the story there. We. Our family was separated. Maggie was with the Simons for four and a half years. She had to go to work because, so she went to live with my mom in London. And that's a whole another story. I can, if you have time, I can tell you about that. But I stayed in Hartford because of schooling. And I had a scholarship. that That scholarship would have taken me through any English university providing I kept up my grades
0: so uh, what was your resolve during the time when you were separated from your mom and your sister to keep going and to say
1: I was lucky I didn't have to have much resolve I had, I had first the shepherds and then, and then the, the, the petits, who took wonderful care of me who, when they could, communicate with mom, would make sure that she knew we were, I was in good shape. So, and and I had I made friends very easily. My English was perfect by then, probably better than most
0: English kids. During that time, did you see your mom at all?
1: Yeah. Here's what happened. This is the part I left out because it gets a little complicated. She's in in London, and. She's admitted as a refugee, as were the men. And the, and the men were sort of semi-interned, like happened to the Japanese here in America. Mm-hmm. Um, for a while, the men were interned, but when they were released, they were also barred from sensitive work or whatever that was, whoever classifies. So, So I had an uncle that got out also to England I've forgotten what. Oh, I know how he got out, and his wife. They got out because she was a highly trained nurse.
0: And they wanted that skill. And And the English wanted that skill. Oh, sure.
1: So he was. She was a nurse, and he was required to be a gardener Uh in in the London suburbs. He couldn't. I think he was working in like a nursery or something like that. That was my uncle Fritz. But what happened was, in, in somewhere along the line, the British realized they had all these people, the men were gardeners and the women were housemates, and all their population was in the armed services, even the w- women. So they decided to let these refugees have real jobs. And mom, this was, had to be in 1942, 43, After I hadn't seen her in three, or she hadn't seen me, in three years, she got a job in a garment factory making uniforms, because she was capable. She was a seamstress, which she taught herself while we were still in Germany. So bingo, she got a job that gives her a meaningful salary. And then one else, I have a document that reads something like, the war chattels act i think in other words a chattels are is the english word is a word for personal property mm-hmm. and it was the british government's attempt they they passed a law or regulation that allowed the english treasury to estimate and reimburse people who lost property from the bombing so they would be able to go buy a pair of shoes or they would have clothes on their back and such and we have this notice in very fancy English but it says Mrs. Romberg it has the address of the house where she was the housemate because it was bombed to the ground and she lost everything and it says they I actually have a uh, we estimate that you lost goods worth I think it's like 54 pounds seven shillings and sixpence and we have advanced to you uh i think it was 11 pounds so we owe you 46 pounds 11 shillings and sixpence and that was simultaneously with her getting that job and that 47 pounds had to be at that time it doesn't sound like much to you but but it's monster money to her Mm mm-hmm it might have been as much as a year's worth of work as a housemate. And with that money, and she was beginning to earn a salary, she and several refugees, they got together and they rented a boarding house. Each of them had a room and they shared the kitchen they shared the bathroom and so on and so forth in, in, uh, in London. And that's where my sister went to live with them. And it afforded mama to come buy a train ticket come and see our little boy good so that's the first time we actually got together and the second and then the first time that we lived as a family the three of us was on that ship huh okay after six years
0: yeah first time to be back together as a Mm -hmm. family took six years
1: so that's the story till we got to america i'm a refugee and, and refugees from my own experience there may be one in a thousand that does what your current politicians are telling you, that, that carry diseases or are crooks or whatever. But for the most part all that refugees want is to find a place where they have some peace, where they can go to work where they can pay their taxes, and where they have a chance with somebody or some country gives them just the opportunity to educate their kids so their kids have a better life than they do. That's what comes of it. That's what refugees do. Lock, stock, and barrel, and there are very few exceptions. Okay, That's one lesson from my lifestyle. The other lesson, or lessons, that in all these escape stories, whether they are mine as a refugee, whether they are the people who suffered through the actual Holocaust and still wear the, the tattoos on their arms,
0: mm-hmm.
1: those few, and there are very few, that escaped are relatively very few. Of the millions that died, the few tens of thousands that got out, those escape stories have a couple of common elements. Usually, not always, but usually, somebody volunteered, put up their hands, and said, how can I help? Mm -hmm. Whether it's an individual whether it's the Quakers as a group, whether it's a nation that's generous enough to say, we'll bring you in, they had little help. The other requirement was that the individual themselves, they had to be adaptable. They had to have the, the education, they had to have the, a forethought they had to be healthy enough physically and gutsy enough mentally to say, I've got to get out of here somehow. Because too few had at that time, and I'm assuming too few even now, have all those combinations at one because without any one of them, survival would have been impossible. Mm-hmm. That's the other lesson. Somebody had to say... How can I help?
0: This has been a good lesson for Mm. me today. And to learn more about what being a refugee is and what it means. And it shows that in today's world with what is going on in the world, there's people that are in need. It's not the refugee who's creating the situation. They just, like you said, want to live in a peaceful setting. where they can have the live life as a respectable person and provide to a community. And and I think whether it's a refugee situation or just in a community, there's somebody there who's in need of help. Yeah. And we all need to raise our hand more than we're already doing and saying, I can help. Yeah, if you can help. And it doesn't take much to help. Sometimes it's just seeing the little boy on the stoop. That's it. when you're putting the cat out and say come over here with me I can help Bert thank you from the deepest part of my heart for taking the time okay. so
1: similar things happened to me when I came to America I got the GI Bill
0: mm-hmm. Hmm.
1: what other nation gave
0: its veterans GI Bill which war or which branch of service were you in Army and did you serve serve during the war time oh, period? I was in Korea. You were in Korea War, okay, in the army. Thank you for your service. <laughs> <laughs> I've had several other veterans on on the show as well. Uh,
1: the army, I, I think, you know, of all the good things that happened to you, the army, next to meeting my wife, I think the army was was the best thing that happened to me. But well, that's, I think, that's for another hour yeah, or two a, of yes. discussion.
0: I think any good husband can say the best thing that has ever happened to <laughs> yeah. us has been her wife. <laughs> that and our children. Yeah. Okay. Bert, thank you. You're welcome. I appreciate You're it. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today to the Jackson Hole Connection. I love hearing from my listeners and subscribers, so if you have feedback or suggestions, please send an email to me connect at the Jackson Hole Connection.com. Please remember when you're in Jackson Hole to visit my friends at Jackson Hole Marketplace. This podcast could not be created without the support of my wife, Laura, my editor, Michael Mori, my musical director, Luke Taylor, and my marketing team, Tana Hoffman. I sure hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to seeing you back for the next episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.